Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We have just witnessed about five minutes ago Rafael Nadal winning major number 22, Roland Garros, number 14, beating Kasparud in the final in straight sets. We are going to get into the final. We're going to talk about what this means uh, for Rafa, but also his run as a whole. We know we didn't record after this Verov win as well, so we're going to get the whole picture. Let's start with this Sunday. Nadal still undefeated in French Open finals. Joel, this felt like an example of uh, Nadal being the better player and not much Rude can really do about it, regardless of Rude maybe not performing to... A 10 out of 10, an A plus, his very, very best. It it, it just, it seemed like, uh, it seemed, the result felt inevitable, no? Well, not easy to play your first major final versus a guy on a court that he's dominated more than anyone has ever dominated any court in the history of the sport. And Rude handed to him for making a good run early in the second set to try to get into it. And then it was almost like, okay, I've given what I can give. And then it's just kind of, it's almost like something snapped. Nadal kicked in. And uh, we've seen this before. We've seen this in hundreds of matches before with Nadal. And now we saw it in this instance. So uh, a little bit of a um, anticlimax given so much of the drama we'd seen earlier in the tournament. Which we expected might happen. And, and it did. <laughs> T- too, good, too good from Nadal in the final, Amy. That that was something that we called um, in the draw show. I think it was like, oh, you know, what is the final going to be? The great Rafael Nadal. I mean, this championship will always be remembered, especially by me, as Rafa won this on the back of his defense, which is really remarkable given that he's got this degenerative foot condition that is is dogging him and may well be the end of his career. But for now, for today, we have this championship. And number 14, he's done it again. The gets that he made, um, the things that he did, the problem solving when the forehand wasn't on, he picked it up, he rallied himself, he kept the ball in play. It was a magical, unforgettable, amazing run. He beat four top 10 players. I don't know the the full historical context of, of how rare that is. Um, and I don't know if one of you could interject if it's like the first time, um, I think it's the first time Nadal has done it. It's the first time Nadal has done it. I think Federer may have done it when he won the 2017 Aussie. Um, yeah. I think he may have, but it's, it's pretty rare. I mean, I was looking through Nadal's French history. There've been several times, certainly two and even three top tenors, but four, four. And also, and we can dig into this a little bit, the, um, the energy it took to beat them, the energy and the duration 
of it. Uh, I mean, that was just uh, incredible too. And this by virtue of the fact that his ranking has slipped. So his seating wasn't as high. He wasn't the top seed in this tournament. So it gets harder for him. It gets harder for him because of age. It gets harder for him because of the foot. And yet he still did it. And with this match today, it was a decisive blow. It was not close. And it was um, another Sunday amazing performance. Well, you know, he's rarely been the one seed at this tournament because he's rarely been number one in the world. So he's, I don't, I don't even remember <clears throat> if he's ever been the number one seed, maybe, maybe in 09. I'm just trying to think of what the rankings were at various times. How many times has Dallas come into this tournament actually being number one in the world, but he's certainly been the favorite for, for 15 years. And this time you're right, this time he was five. Still, still, as we talked about in our draw show, definitely one of the three favorites to win yeah. the tournament. Well, let's go back to that because Nadal wasn't the favorite, mostly for one reason and one reason only. Now, I think Djokovic winning last year might have contributed it uh, to what we saw in the odds um, a little bit, but I think 90%, it's how Nadal walked off the court in Rome. That's what put him down to third place in in the pre-tournament odds. At the end of the day, the key for Rafa, as we said before the tournament started, and let's just not lose sight of it, is that the foot was okay. I mean, it was uh, just a, it, it's absolutely, um, you know, thank goodness that it wasn't the foot um, and he was able to unleash his tennis unhampered uh, throughout this fortnight. And and that is at the crux of it, what needed to happen for Rafa to win number 14. I mean, I guess like in terms of these last uh, three weeks, uh, four weeks about, you know, in terms of the foot going forward, you know, what does this mean? What did we learn about Rafa? The fact that he, he walked off the court in Rome uh, in, in bad shape. And then he was able to win Roland Garros a couple of weeks later. Like what's your interpretation of that, Amy? That he's got a really good doctor. Frankly, um, we know he, he said that he had gotten some pain blocking injections or pain blocking medication, um, you know, not to speculate, it could be cortisone and cortisone is something that is used for very specific circumstances. You can't do it too many times. I mentioned in another show that I actually tore ligaments in my foot and I wanted to play tennis and I went in to the doctor and he's like, if this were your last match and you were playing the finals of the US Open, I would give you a cortisone shot. And it's just so funny that, you know, that may be what's happening with Nadal. But you know, the, the foot isn't getting any better. And Rafa's made the statement that um, they need a solution for him to be able to continue to play. So knowing that, I mean, envision yourself, be empathetic. And, and knowing that, how do you stay focused in the present, match after match, game after game, point after point, knowing that this could be it for you? Um, the, the bittersweet feelings, how do you stay focused the way that he does to be able to get through the FAA match, the Djokovic match, the Zverev match, which was really intense, 
And then to top it off like this in the final, it's just, it's incredible. And it's why, you know, we do this show. Well, and this gets to something that I, um, I wrote up the other day. I think, I think the person's end is in their beginning. And in their beginning is what shapes the person to learn how to compete and how they go about the business, what they do. I think it's funny, we tend, and this is the way we watch sports, we tend to watch these great athletes at these high stakes moments uh, and we even forget, well, wait a second, they've had 15, 20 years of training that's gotten them to that point of values, of practice. And I think, I think with Nadal more than anyone, it's about the values that he was taught to go about competing. I mean, you just think of all that, all the ways with his uncle and his, his uncle Tony and his other uncle Miguel, the soccer player, the things he learned about, what does it mean to be a world-class athlete? How do you conduct yourself and how do you go about competing? So it's not as if he just, I play, play, play. It's like, oh, wow, Roland Garros, injury, what do I do? I think there's just something so embedded into Nadal's operating system about the, the respect he has for the game, the respect he has for his opponents. And that almost allows him in an odd way to relax because he knows it's, it's preparation, it's attitude. He doesn't have the wrong things in his head. You know, I think that's what the pollutant is for a lot of players. And we see that repeatedly when players let themselves get distracted by other things. And, I, and even, even some of the very, very, Great players. I mean, and Nadal's had his moments too. He'll, he's admitted that, but very few, far fewer than just about anyone who's played. And that's what allows him to compete so well. You know, he's not, he's kind of so that allows him to, okay, play a good point. That's what I need to do now. That's all I need to do now is play a good point. Yeah. Th those are uh, great points by both of you. I, uh, I would tend to also agree with the speculation that there was some medical intervention. Um, and I just reading between the lines and maybe Rafa will be open about this at, at some point in terms of uh, the lengths that he had to go just to, to take care of the pain in his foot um, to, to win this event. And that, you know, might determine how he moves forward in terms of making the decision on, on Wimbledon, but it very well could have been, uh, we know how to mask this pain. We're gonna we're gonna do it for these two weeks, and then we're gonna go back to the drawing board. Uh, who knows? But but I would agree with that. Again, speculation, not based off of any information that we really have, other than he had his doctor with him at Roland Garros, which is atypical. And uh, yeah, really impressive that mentally, with all that going on in the background, that he could bring his best time and time again. Is it worth delving into? the tactics of the Nadal rude final uh, other than it's going to require a better backhand to, uh, to have a chance against the best righty backhand attacker in the history of the game. Oh, for rude. You mean, so for rude tactics, I, I think certainly well, no, not, not, not from Rude's perspective, but in this matchup in order to have a chance against Nadal, if you're Casper Ruud, I think there's a technical deficiency that you're just not going to be able to overcome, really, which is that you you must have a great back end. You must be Zverev, Medvedev, Djokovic. Uh, you know what we saw? What a struggle it was for Federer. Uh, you must have a great backhand to be okay in this matchup on clay, especially. Agreed. Agreed completely. I mean, look, Nadal's bread and butter shot is the cross court forehand. And if he sees you have a cavity there, it's happening, man. You are, you, you are, you are up against it. And then what happens, then I think for Rude, then what happens, that puts even more pressure on the forehands. 
because then he gets a shot for front. Boy, I better do something with this forehand. And look, and the people who've, who've beaten Nadal on clay, all two of them, um, Soderling, a pretty good backhand and an atomic forehand that day. And then you got Novak, arguably the best backhand ever. Yeah, I, it's hard. You've made your first final of a Grand Slam. It's hard to deviate too much from what brought you to the final. And, you know, what brought him was putting the backhand back in the court with margin and attacking the forehand and serving well. But that's just not enough against Nadal. Everybody knows it. Nadal is makes no secret about how he plays this type of player. So to have any shot of winning, I think he would have had to go radical, you know, serve and volley, um, junk ball, mix up the tempo, like something really, really that would be a departure from what brought him to the final. And I just don't think he was in any way, shape or form prepared to do that. And I don't really blame him. No, not at this stage. I mean, it's like the way in the big match, that's where the skill building goes on. That's where rude, whether it's off season, uh, other events, other, other times making a shot better. And look, and that's what the big three have shown. The big three have shown that even though they each were getting some pretty good results, fairly young in their career, they're better. They're better. I mean, watch that. I was watching some of the 05 uh, uh, Nadal Federer semi at Roland Garros. Nadal now is so much better than he was then. It's incredible. A little bit slower, but a lot more skills, right, Joel? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I'm not going to, I don't want to get out my stopwatch. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. One more thing on this. Casper Rude was seven years old. It was 2005, Joel, the, when, when, when you were watching that match. Uh, he has never seen Rafa lose a Roland Garros final. He has been a Nadal fan. He attended the academy. That is well documented, right? Uh, now he's the guy. He's the guy on the other side of the net. He's been watching this match his whole life. Nadal has won this match, the final at Roland Garros, his entire life. Now it's him. He's the guy. What is the effect of that mentally? I guess one effect is like you're completely, you're already down about 4-0 by the time you walk on the court and you're, but, but that's, that gets, that's some interesting things. We fascinating to ever, if we could ever learn what Rude and his dad discussed before the match. It's like, Hey, you know, this, you should be, you could be less nervous. You've watched this. You've seen Rafa. You've studied him. You've, you've seen all his music and here you are. What a great opportunity. This is fantastic. Go make history. Go join these in. However, however, you come across what you've seen, you practice, and then it's like the irrational approach is to see this opportunity. The rational approach is to think, oh my God, oh my God, now it's me. Now it's me in my first ever major final. I mean, you want to almost think that a guy like Rude, oh, could I have just gotten some Australian Open and played a guy? Could I have just had my first major B versus Thomas Johansson? or Sebastian Grosjean, you know, some kind of manageable thing, but now I got to play the king in the king's castle. Ugh. Well, I think the, what was written all over his face is that he didn't want to embarrass himself. He wanted to at least entertain the crowd with some, some good points and, you know, not let it be a blowout, but that mentality is not 
really a winning mentality. It, it's a tough ask. There's no shame in, in losing to the King of Clay on Chatrier in the final of the French Open. So he did the best he could. He'll learn from it. He's a great player. Um, I mean, Gil, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but I, I just thought this Zverev match was imminently more interesting. I was and, gonna. That was okay. my. I was gonna Go say ahead. my next thing was Amy. What did you think of this Zverev match? Yeah, I I just thought that the Zverev contest was um, on the back of Nadal's defense. I felt that Nadal was actually winning the match in a pretty clear way and when Zverev was injured it was the emotions were just right beneath the surface um yeah there was the pain of of what happened but also there was the the trauma of of fighting against Rafael Nadal and um I thought that Zverev was committing many more errors and I thought that uh there was firepower more firepower but if you hit you know, a hundred mile an hour forehand, that only count for a winner, that only counts for one point. And while um, Nadal was down in the breaker, uh, he's Rafael Nadal and he's dug himself out of this sort of situation before. So it shouldn't surprise people that he was able to do it. So the, the commentators, including David Ferrer, your favorite, Gil, oh, who what did said, he, say? he said that he thought that Zverev, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he said he thought that Zverev was, was basically winning the match and that somehow Nadal had come out with that first set. Um, but I disagree. Um, I, maybe it's just me seeing that cup half full with Rafael Nadal, but I thought he had control of the match and um, was uh, was in control and probably would have won the second set. But that's just, that's an opinion. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, I, I like that assessment you make, Amy, about the uh... The, the Nadal and his defense and his and where he was where he was controlling the match because he was up a set in that tie break and so you, maybe what you're saying and I want to just get at this in a two-step way is that okay let's say they go to that tie break and Nadal wins that or even if they split that that you think Nadal is kind of in control enough that that doesn't give Zverev a toehold much into the match that's is that what I'm hearing that you feeling Nadal is kind of like winning the yardage and all that is yeah, and especially given that Zverev's record, career record in best of five matches is, especially five set matches, is not stellar. So if Nadal goes up two sets to love, then 
yeah, I don't see Zverev as, as um, having a big chance to win the match. I would agree with that. What I think with my point on the, um, what I consider the set stealing, the set stealing was my favorite metric in tennis is still the scoring system. And 6-2, 6-2 in a tiebreak. You know, Nadal has rallied before from set points down and things like that. But 6-2 down in a tiebreak. And then you saw the very texture of those points, the way Nadal won them, particularly the 6-4 points. I mean, that is one for the ages. And that shows the, contemporary, the way contemporary tennis is played to see how far off the court Zverev pulled him with that forehand. And then Nadal had to come back. And then he had to run the other way to track down Zverev's back, and which I guess arguably wasn't quite as deep as, 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 it, might, as, as it could be, but it was still pretty- It was hard, though. It was hard. The and problem, then, I think, on that backhand is he went cross-court. He could have gone anywhere else, but he crushed it cross-court. No, but I think he's just, that's, you know, you, you got the guy way off the court. He hits it short to your favorite shot. You hit yeah. your shot, and you force him to come up with something. And then Nadal showed his genius. And I think, and so I, I think, but I think your point, Amy, which I'll agree with is, as the second set wore on, even though it was tight, Nadal was still in control, and Zverev was up against it. So that I would agree with, but I just think the, uh, I think he did steal that first set though. I think Nadal really, he, he, he stole that one. Look, I thought both in the first set were up and down in their own ways. You know, Zverev was like spectacular for the first seven games. And then I thought there was, there was a level dip. Nadal wasn't himself the entire set and to me and, and still kind of won. but his, the best points Nadal played of the entire first set end of the tiebreak. And Joel talks about the scoring system. That's what happens. That's how you win. Um, however, I just want to say that wasn't a normal match. This was, uh, this was some of the slowest I've ever seen a court play with two players who are extremely speedy and skilled defensively. The physicality of that match was at a level that was entirely unsustainable. And if Zverev won the second set, which I feel like is a possibility, kind of up in the air, if Zverev won the second set, someone was going to break, in my opinion. Um, that's the only, you know, I try to avoid after the match, I tried to avoid speculating about who, was, who would have won the match because uh, I just feel like I don't know. The one thing that I would speculate on is if it continued like that, someone physically was going to snap or cramp uh, and obviously we have the freak injury. I don't know if that came down to the, the physicality that we saw leading up to that point. But like, I mean, the roof closed and the humid conditions, it was just insanity. Um, and, you know, whoever won, the fact that that match did not go the distance, it would have benefited Zverev if that happened. And it, it certainly benefited Nadal that that happened because uh, it was just getting to the point that was unsustainable, in my opinion in terms of how physical it was. I guess so would, you're it, saying that the longer it went, it was disadvantage Nadal? Is that what you're saying, Gil? If it had gone the distance, it might've been disadvantage Nadal? It would have been disadvantage both players for the final, I'm saying. Disadvantage oh, okay, whoever, I see. whoever I see. won, whoever won. So I advantage, advantage Rude. It, it would have helped Rude, yes, if, if that match continued the way it was. Now. Uh, and I'm just saying, I guess the deciding factor in that match would have likely been first man to collapse uh, loses, last guy standing wins. I just thought that that's how the match would have gone if it continued. 
Yeah, and what's interesting, remember the story, the episode that we did and we were talking about Hartrue and the slideability of the surface and all that. And I said that the Hartrue that I play, the clay that I play on around here, you cannot slide on it. It's too thick. It's like mud. And I, I asked my coach the other day, I'm like, you can't slide on this, right? And he's like, yeah, no, this is not slidable. It had just like poured down rain, but it mm -hmm. was still playable. Um, that became the clay here. It became watching that watch the end of that set. Uh, Nadal and Zverev trying to slide on that stuff. They weren't getting any glide on it. And that, in my opinion, had to do with the ro roof being closed and the heaviness and the humidity. It became like mud and may have been a contributing factor to his injury. So, I, I mean, I would like to see Roland Garros do a better job of controlling the humidity when the roof is closed. And also, the minute you don't need the roof to be closed, open that thing. But um, also, I think uh, uh, the physicality of the match, you're right, Gil, had to have contributed as well. I think generally, though, um, at these events, when they, once they close the roof, they're pretty much going to close the roof because then they're going to open and it rains again. I think they want to, I, I don't, I don't that, know. That's generally protocol. That, that that's doesn't protocol, mean it, that doesn't but, mean it's but correct. Joel, Joel, there's been discussion about this. I didn't like come out of this out of left field. I didn't pull this out of the sky. There's been legitimate discussion about how this should be handled going forward because um, that may have been unsafe. Well, that's a great point, but I like your point about the managing of the humidity because clearly that's the factor. I mean, we're seeing like Nadal doesn't want to put the ball in his pocket, right? And the, and, and, and the sweating and the towel yeah. and the ch change and, and talking to the chair about giving time. I mean, that place must have been just a, like, a, like a greenhouse, right? Exactly. Yeah. Just like a greenhouse or, yeah, like a steam room, I think someone said. Uh, I don't know if it was Jim Courier or, or I, I don't know, but yeah, someone called it a steam room. Sauna. And, and that's a great point you make, Amy, about the, um, about the mobility and what may have contributed to um, Zverev's injury. But also the court speed. So it's difficult, obviously, yeah. physically. Um, but now you have, I mean, majority rallies over four shots, I think. Or no, I think average length was um, coming up against four, but not quite four. That's still way more than, than is typical. Um, and the... That also, you know, again, not only what were the conditions oppressive uh, physically, but also the points were long as a result of the court speed. It was a combination that that made for a match that, again, I, I thought was unfortunately going to be decided um, by attrition, uh, which which hopefully we don't have that. We don't really want that uh, maybe sometimes, but not not like that. So, yeah, I would like RG to look into that. What, what the conditions become when they close the roof. And I like that you said, I like that you said that, Gil, because I, I, I don't want to see my least favorite word to describe a tennis match. He outlasted him. I mean, it's not a dance marathon. And I never <laughs> like that. I don't like that word. It's not, it's a, it's a game of, it's a contest of skill, not just of who can be standing up. But I, I do think that Nadal has won titles by outlasting his opponents before. And, you know, recall that the Australian Open, we wondered if it would be a battle of attrition and who would come out on top of that. We worried about Nadal and um, who came out on top there. That's true. That's, that's a great point. Yeah, no question.
that's kind of what stood out to me about this run um, or one of the things. I mean, Nadal, technically speaking, I thought was pretty great in every match except for the Zverev match where where his forehand, I think, was kind of lost some feel and confidence, uh, which might have been down to the conditions a little bit. Uh, but other than that, four-plus hours against Felix, four-plus hours against Novak, physical as heck against Zverev and is completely in, in that match at every step of the way. Uh, and then and then he really didn't need it against Kasparud in the final. Fresh as a daisy against Rude. I mean, you're right, Gil. Like, you can sense these little dips, and, and you can see it in the depth of, of the forehand where he starts dropping it short. But then he'll switch, and, and you know, beast mode kicks in, and, you know, he's he's hitting his run around forehand, and he's getting the angles and all that. So... Um, it's just something he seems to be able to work through. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk about the slam race. 22-2020. Obviously, uh, this, the beginning of this year. So Nadal is now one. I don't think this has been mentioned explicitly yet. Uh, this is the first time in, the, in Nadal's career he's won the Australian Open and Roland Garros. Um, things have gone swimmingly two for two similar to or the same you know of what Novak did last year so we continue to see twists and turns and I mean my first thing right now is um, we all kind of lament the goat debate in certain ways for all of the toxicity and the useless discussion that surrounds it but this slam race is very compelling and continues to kind of twist and turn well a year ago, it would have been hard to think that Novak would be at 20 and Nadal would be at 22. We're just talking shared numbers. That is pretty amazing because for so long, it's been that Novak's a little younger, fresher, fit, all these things. Nadal constantly struggling with this, uh, with physical matters. I mean, look, he he's had this year, let's see, the foot, the cracked rib, COVID, all these things in Nadal's 2022. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think about, uh, is Nadal going to play Wimbledon? I mean, I want to think, how could he pass that up? But I don't know. Well, I don't really love the GOAT debate either. And of course, my editor for tomorrow wants me to write on the GOAT debate. <laughs> uh, and I have to, like, figure out how to do that. But um, the, the GOAT debate is separate from the slam tally, which right. is very compelling to me. And the, the twists and turns that this thing has taken. And, you know, now the calendar slam is in play for Rafa. And um, who knows? Who knows? Let's, let's see what he says in his post-match press conference. I would love to see him play Wimbledon. Now, of course, then there's the other Nadal strategy. It's like, you know what? Foot, injury, Wimbledon. But don't think he's not thinking about 23, right, in, in New York. So maybe it becomes that it's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to play Wimbledon and, and who knows what even the movements, I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, the movement on the grass or this yeah. recovering and, and maybe gear up for the um, probably the two North American hardcore tournaments he wants to play leading up to the U S open, maybe even just one. Uh, That's a great point, Joel. And like to play grass after go having gone all the way through Roland Garros, wouldn't he want to warm up? But he wouldn't want to play a warm up because he's tired and, and the foot needs to heal. So, no chance he plays a warm up. 
Yeah. But right. but that's typical. He I don't think he I think right. he goes a lot of years without playing a warm-up. Right. So right? does Novak. And Novak yeah. may not play a warm-up. Novak has a whole dialed in. Novak probably for all we know is right now already practicing on grass. You know, that he's just getting himself organized and there's a whole efficiency. But when you describe Nadal, it makes me think it makes me think of when I try to organize my airport trips on the day I have an afternoon flight. So the flights at one get to the international flight, <laughs> but there might be traffic and then I got to do this. And next thing you know, you know what I mean? It's like you're, because Nadal is already thinking if, if it's a tournament, if there's Wimbledon and there's a warm up and there's a practice. So I think Nadal's like, I mean, how soon after today does Nadal want to hit a tennis ball? Eight days, 10 days, 30 days. There's some fishing in his future for there's sure. Definitely some fishing in his future. Yeah. There are also grass courts in Mallorca, I will add. Um, they had, they had, didn't they have the half grass? The, remember the grass clay match with Fed? <laughs> yeah, that? Oh, I don't yeah. think that I don't think that's a permanent establishment, Joel. Is that <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I don't know, uh, Joel. You're getting ready to go into the press conference, and by the way, let let us know if you have to go um, at any point. But I, I my sense is that Rafa is going to push this decision off. Um, in fact, I'd be almost certain that he'll push the decision off. Uh, he's not going to say anything about Wimbledon yet. And uh, they're going to go, you know, take this, the, the methodical route. Um, you know, I, I guess the Wimbledon field, I mean, no, no Zverev, it looks like. No Medvedev. CT Pass is just not the threat that he is on clay. Not without a slice. Yeah. I mean, think about how kind of barren that those secondary contenders are if you compare it to the clay, where, you know, Rafa must feel like, well, if I'm on the other side, opposite Novak, I mean, I, I feel pretty good about making the final if I'm healthy. So I, I don't know. It's it, Wimbledon is. It's very, very intriguing. Well, it's kind of ripeness. It's like there's a part of the, hey, wait, the last two times I played here, I did get to the semis. I played, I lost to the, 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 the king of grass, Roger. I, I took Novak right to the edge. But again, I guess the whole physicality aspect of Nadal, that's such a, that's the eternal mystery in tennis. Yeah. And, and again, it's going to be, it's, it's all going to come down to what did they have to do in these last two weeks for the foot to be better? Was it something that, is not repeatable uh, that, you know, they're going to have to get away from, or is it something that, you know, where they found a solution that they're satisfied with moving forward with. Uh, but my thing, you know, the one thing I kind of wanted to say about Nadal moving ahead, uh, going ahead too, you know, I don't think that Novak would be sweating too much um, in terms of like, this is kind of trouble because I, I think Djokovic has great confidence in his longevity. Um, I think the X factor here is Carlos Alcaraz. I respect him that much that I, I think there that, that how, how fast his development is can be a, a major key here. And uh, I think that it's, it's nice to have a lead that Nadal just built. It's nice to have a lead when you have that, that X factor in, in Alcaraz uh, who could rise to to the top of the game, the very top of the game, in the coming years? So you think that Al you don't necessarily mean Alcaraz at Wimbledon. You mean Alcaraz in the years to come? Is Alcaraz as a factor who can who can take slams 
who can capture market share. Alcaraz, there might be a bit of a, a timer on Alcaraz to when he starts becoming a factor in who's winning majors. Right now, I think Djokovic sees it as, okay, it's me versus Rafa. Let's do this. And, and I got this because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be still playing great in 2024. Everything's all gravy. I'm not going anywhere. The X factor in that is who is Carlos Alcaraz in 2024? Um, and, you know, does that kind of change the calculus? To me, that's one interesting aspect about this thing. Um, and, you know, obviously you want to have a lead. I'm just saying even more so with, the, with what we've seen in the last two months from Alcaraz, now I think you really want to have a lead. You see, what's interesting about this is after watching Zverev beat Alcaraz, I'm now taking a little bit off of the hype in my mind surrounding Alcaraz. And I thought after watching that match, either Zverev has improved exponentially or Alcaraz still has a bit of a way to go. And particularly on, on the Grand Slam um, scene. So um, I, I'm, I'm not as worried about um, Alcaraz for Djokovic at, on, in the Grand Slams in the short term, in the short term. That's why this decision by Nadal, whether or not to play Wimbledon is pivotal because um, with Zverev out of there, he's, he's out now. Um, he, may, he may be out for the rest of the year. And that's a major, major contender right there with a lot of Grand Slam experience. Um, it, it, the, the field is just like easy pickings at Wimbledon. So um, Nadal is almost conceding if, um, if he can't play. Yeah, and I agree, I agree with your take on the, um, the improved, the improved Sverev and the, yeah, Carlos still maybe a little, let's see what the slam picture is, how well he can really, he's, He's not quite at his best slam. He's not near his best slam form yet. He's still a youngster, right, for these big matches. But uh, yeah, that's a lot of things for the Nadal camp to figure. But I think it's really just going to be about what's it look like physically. You know, it's like the for sure, for sure. That's the stuff that I want the narrative to be sometimes around. Um, you know, halfway to the slam and Wimbledon, and Nadal hasn't won Wimbledon since 2010, and here's another chance and more more slammage and win Wimbledon three times and then calendar and U.S. Open. I think, I think that what's my, how's, how's this foot feel? Uh, and maybe it's a question, take a few days off, hit a few balls, talk with a doctor, maybe a little grass practice, see what that's like, and then decide. So we probably won't be hearing from Nadal for about at least 10 days on this. I agree. Let me just respond to, uh, to what Amy said about, about Carlos. Um, and I don't think you're alone in that, Amy. It was kind of like a moment where it's like, okay, foot off, foot off the gas. To me, the same. Like my opinion, completely unchanged about Carlos. Uh, the way I looked at that match is, I, I think, uh, I think Zverev is probably the fourth to fifth. Uh, maybe I'll say five through three, five through three best clay court players in the world. I think Alcaraz five to three best clay court players in the world right now. So, you know, to me, they're similar. And this is Alcaraz's sixth slam of his career, just sixth main draw um, in his career. So to me, it's just a trajectory thing where it's like Alcaraz is going to blow by Zverev. Not yet, right now. 
either one can win that match. And and it wasn't it wasn't even surprising me, to me that that Zverev won. But that's why I just kind of look at that match as, yep, Zverev can beat Alcaraz right now, no doubt about it. He beat him, um, but still, Carlos, what we've seen um, out of him at, at his age and and the the eye test of his game, still something that is worthy of a lot of excitement for the future. Mm-hmm. For the future, for long term, but I think it's for long term. Absolutely, I'm, I very much admire Alcaraz. But as far as let's say in the short term, I want to see him play at Wimbledon versus Cam Norrie. Sure, I want to see that kind of match and see him and and see him just like just like when he had to versus Ramos Vinolas and in Roland Garros. You know, Alcaraz he's got some more he got some work to do before he starts always hanging out in the upper division. You know, in the I, late stages. I think it just speaks to how different the Grand Slam feel is from other ATP tournaments, you know, the best of three situation. And it's not just best of five versus best of three. There's something more to it. There's more weight. There's more points. There's more money. There's more prestige. There's, it's just a different feel. So um, Alcaraz reminded me actually of the way Zverev was a few years ago when he was just underperforming a little bit, a little bit in the grand slams. And, and people were like, when's this guy going to win one? We're not there with Alcaraz yet, but it's kind of like that match kind of reminded you like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's just see. Exactly. All right. Let's uh, let's end on the lasting memory of this Nadal run. What do you think you'll remember, whether it be a moment, whether it be a match, let's say uh, a couple of years down the road? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about it right now, and I, I think I have a, a, a point that stands out, but I, I'd like to simmer on it maybe a little bit more. Do, do either of you have an answer ready? Yeah, I, I wonder if we all three have the same one. Okay. That it was it was a, the point in the tiebreak, the first set tiebreak against Zverev, where Rafa was down, and was it six five guys? Six four, I believe. Six four to make it six five, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, where uh, Zverev just spread the court on Rafa, and he pulled him way, way, way out wide on one end, and Rafa did one of his spinning you know, just touch the racket completely horizontally and then run, just beeline it for the other end of the court and hit a passing shot. Um, It's one of the most amazing points that I've ever seen. And the fact that it was done by a guy of his age with a hurt foot um, at a grand slam down in a tiebreaker, that was my moment. You're right. I mean, I can't speak for you, Gil, but you got, you're right on my front, Amy. That tie, that point in the tiebreak, Zverev serving 6-4, and Nadal, uh, the age and the stage. I mean, you know, that's like when you, uh, that's that's just incredible. And then and then I've macroed out that entire tiebreaker. That's that's the that's the memorable moment of the tournament. Fully agree. That's honestly the match that will stand out to me as well in terms of memorability. There were a lot of oddities, including with how it ended. Um, you know, the, the win over Djokovic, it's just another win over Djokovic at, at Roland Garros. It wasn't the most uh, memorable of their matches. It's just going to be 
you know, one of the, one of the eight now, um, the, the final will be like 2018 against team where it's like, you don't really remember that final other than like Nadal was just better and took care of business. It was the Zverev match and definitely the tiebreak where, by the way, not only did he hit that incredible forehand passing shot at 6-4, set point, he uh, read Zverev, he gave up a sitter off of a good Zverev first serve. Zverev stepped in, hit a, a strong forehand approach shot, but Nadal read it. He was already ranging to his left, perfect timing, forehand down the line pass. And the reaction was was really interesting. He just kind of gave his box a stare. Um, it was a very like, yup, I'm the man kind of thing. <laughs> it was, it was a, it was a little bit unraffle like, but I loved the reaction. You know, it was kind of like Alcaraz. It, it, was. it, rem- it, it was. reminded me. <laughs> so uh, there you have it. Congratulations to Rafa Nadal and his fans on, um, what was uh, another tremendous Roland Garros title number 14, major number 22, and lots of questions to be answered over the course of the next couple of weeks as we ponder Wimbledon. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We'll see you next time on the next episode of three.